Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. First time author prize. Her short stories include How About the Children, Kalahari Review, Things Are Hard in the 2012 Kane Prize Anthology, Fish in the Moth Literary Journal, and The Leftovers, One World Two. Yawande was a 2015 Miles Moreland Scholar. Her second novel, The Woman Next Door, was shortlisted for the International Dublin Literary Award and longlisted for the Bailey's Women's Literature Prize. Her third novel that we'll be talking about today is called An Unusual Grief and is described as a tender and essential meditation on the inheritance of loss and a bittersweet and gripping story. As one reviewer says on the cover fold, Omotoso's prose is sharp and precise as it pierces the exterior and allows you to peel back the layers of humanity on the flawed and fragile characters in an unusual grief. The story details multiple forms of parenting and motherhood, as well as how, at times, we must reparent ourselves in order to become whole. Yawanda is the mother of twins, Taye and Kayende, who are two. So today I'll be talking with, with Yawande about feminism, motherhood, writing, and unusual grief. Welcome, Yawande. Thank you so much, Jen. It's wonderful to be part of this amazing project that you have going on here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Let's start with your parenting journey to twins, which I'm amazed at anyone who raises twins amazed and humbled. How has wow. feminism informed your parenting and how has your parenting journey begun to inform your parent, your feminism? Mm. Yeah, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a big question. Um, so I'll try and answer it, some pieces of it, but probably not do it full justice in just one answer. Um, I mean, I think... I mean, a funny thing actually, when I was um, when I was pregnant and I didn't yet know what gender my children were. I always, you know, I always thought I would have a girl, or maybe when I realized I was having twins, I'd have a, a girl and a boy. And um, I remember being quite afraid, you know, that that was the first. I mean, obviously, one is happy, but I was struck with quite a bit of fear when I realized I was having two boys. Um, and um, I, I must say, I don't, I don't even know what all that meant. I think I was just like, whoa, really? Well, how, how am I going to manage that? And it felt like it was something to manage. And I wonder if some of my feminism was at play there in like, okay, um, I was entering, I was going to be a single parent. Um, what would this mean? I feel like I had a handle or some thinking around what it would be to raise a girl. Um, and I just didn't have any, I didn't have any reference for what it would mean um, to raise boys. Um, and, and since I had that thought or that experience, many things have happened. You know, um, I mentioned it to a friend of mine and they then, you know, said, well, you know, one day, you know, what, what does that mean? And what do you, what are you making gender mean? And what assumptions are you making? which was, uh, that was a really fruitful conversation to have, of course, and an opportunity to check myself and what some of my sort of automatic prejudices are. Um, so I think in terms of my feminism, I mean, something that's been 
something that's been interesting at times, revealing, uh, helpful to me, and also give insight to myself and society is the ways people respond people respond to to gender and the ways I've responded to gender. Um, I, I another another friend of mine was like, oh, you know, kept saying, oh, girls are so much sweeter. And of course, you know, I thought, well, that's rubbish. <laughs> and um, where does that come from? Um, and I've noticed now my boys are two, how much I feel like I have to protect them from sometimes from myself and my own, you know, assumptions and prejudices, but also the world and the ways that we make boys and we make girls right through socialization and it's it feels like it's just it's just in the water you know you can do all you can in your home and then you send them out somewhere and they come back and they bring stuff with them and you're like what where did that come from um so i think that's that's been really inter interesting for me to 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 be a feminist and then now be a feminist with <clears throat> at least currently I'm raising them as boys currently, and um, it just gives me so much insight into just more into gender and, and the socialization. Um, so that's that's an immediate thing that comes to mind. I think in terms of my in terms of my journey to becoming a mother, I feel like feminism was a huge part of it because I've I've taken certainly a, a particularly unconventional route, not not out of automatic choice, but out of circumstance. Um, I had my children, I was 40 when I had my kids. So, so, and that wasn't, that was because I just found myself, um, like I'd, I'd always, I sort of signed up to, yes, I would meet someone that I liked and we would, you know, marriage was never a big thing for me, but we would sort of commit and commit seriously and long enough to think of bringing another human into the world. Um, <clears throat> and for some reason, year after year, you know, half decade after half decade, that, that didn't happen for me um, until I got to a stage where I was having to make um, big decisions about, okay, hmm, you know, is this something that I want to try? Could I try it by myself? What kind of support do I have? Would it be possible, even just biologically? I, you know, I, I had certain challenges um, in terms of my uh, ability to bear, to, you know, carry children and so on. So I think, and I think, I feel, and I, at least I hope that my feminism um, and my community supported me in walking a journey that was not conventional. Um, and that would mean that I'm, in a sense, going against what society says a woman is or our mother is or what a family is. And that interests me greatly. The idea of what is a family, what constitutes family, um, what constitutes relation in family. Uh, and it's actually something I'm writing about, which I think I mentioned to you earlier. I'll stop there. I feel like I've said a lot. I mean, it was all, everything you said was wonderful and true. And I think so much thought you are such a thoughtful person so so much thought has gone into everything as usual and I'm wondering you you know you're a writer and an architect and you're already having to straddle these two identities how did you add in the third of mother did it slip in easily or was it a, an adjustment for you 
Um, you know, it's interesting because I'm also not someone who I haven't always known myself as broody or maybe that's why it took a while for me to come to motherhood. Um, or like I must have children or it's, uh, and, and um, because my journey was quite fraught and involved, involved loss as well. Um, I did come to a point where I was like, well, you know, this might not be one of the identities for me, or at least not in this traditional sense. I, um, I looked at adoption a lot, even when I when it looked like I would not be able to have children in a in a more sort of at least you know um, fall pregnant, let's say. So um, so the so the the, the the this thing of motherhood, um, I would say it sort of crept up on me, um, and became something I was really interested in. But again, very open to how that would look. Um, I realized, okay, maybe I won't be pregnant with my child, but I'll have my child in a different way, you know. Um, and I think that openness uh, allowed the identity of motherhood to come to me because it wasn't fixed. Um, and maybe, I mean, in terms of what you're asking in relation to writer and, and architect, I mean, it feels, it's funny that you put it in that category because I think I've never really thought of it um, I would put it more in in like as a black woman or uh, maybe as an African or um, I don't know. It feel it feels the, the the identity of it feels much more much more embedded than a practice. I mean, obviously, writing is deeply embedded for me, and even architecting, but. I don't know. There's something a bit more visceral about 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 the identity of motherhood. Yeah, I mean, in an unusual grief, Montesola's answers of pregnancy and of the parenting to come, it's frightening, she said. It's natural. It's normal. It's not normal. It's easy. It's not easy. It's proper love. Men don't know. Men can't know. And then shortly after that in the book, she describes the birth of the baby and the first few weeks of months of her life with Yinka and as a new mother and Yinka was a colicky baby and um, Mojisola has to deal with her alone at home mostly while Titus is at work the father mm. and he's mm. so shocked by this transformation and so is Mojisola I think and Auntie Modupe says to her be careful don't love her too much and Mojisola thinks was it love though it felt more like being overrun being colonized at once complete and irreversible and when I read that it felt so true to me as like a brand new mom motherhood is everything all at once and the word that kept coming to my mind in the early days of my child life child's life was tethered how truly linked mm -hmm. you become to another being in a way that at least I hadn't been to anyone else before like bound mm -hmm. to them yeah. so how do you yeah. think that we as feminists and as parents can begin to ensure that this tethering is not constricting for those other practices in our life but is also some form of of liberation or you know is actualizing in a way mm, yeah it's it's yeah it's you know I, th I think the liberation comes from having space and room for for what this thing is because I think what, what I tackled a lot with um writing on unusual grief and interestingly I mean I wrote on unusual grief maybe over the span of about five years, many, much of that time, I wasn't even trying to, you know, have a child. Um, and the book came out. I mean, so we finished the book at least 
um, I think just before uh, my kids were born. Um, but uh, and what I was looking at with an unusual grief, even before I was sort of thinking of motherhood for myself, was the box that motherhood lives in a lot in society. Like there's just this box. So in that box, we could have love and we have nurture, but we don't have jealousy. We don't have, you know, you definitely don't have sex. You don't have, you know, so I was really looking at the the constraints this like, why have we made motherhood so damn constrained? And that's for me, I think, where the liberation can come. It's like, there can be room. So the, the same way in my parenting, I, there's room for, you know, the, the child can cry because that's an expression. The child can be angry. Of course, the child can be angry. You know, you don't say, oh, don't be angry or stop crying because obviously all of that's allowed. That's the full gamut of human emotion and expression. Well, the same for motherhood. I can be angry. I, I mean, it doesn't have to equal, you know, if my son wants to sort of be at that age that he wants to smack me, you know, I can hold his hand very gently and say, you know, you can definitely be angry, but you can find a different way to express that. And I can guide him through that. Same with me. I can have deep frustration, you know, at this, at the two-year-old. I, it doesn't, I'm not, I'm not smacking him. I'm not shouting at him. It doesn't have to be a violence. It can be, it can simply be the purity of that experience, you know, the trueness of that emotion and the acknowledgement of, you know, I'm actually quite frustrated in this moment. So I, I think that's where the liberation is. And I, um, when I allow myself to be, to be the everything, to be exhausted and tired and fed up and still be madly in love with my children and still be nurturing and still want to care and still concerned, but also exhausted, also depressed because I haven't written, you know, in the last five days, haven't slept, haven't. Can we, can we carry all of that? Um, can that all be contained? And can those other emotions not mean that, not equal bad mother, negligent mother, selfish mother, you know, can it all live under that identity? And I think that's for me, where the liberation can come. Because if, if it can, then yeah, bring it on. But if it can't, if motherhood is just this straight white line, and that's the thing I have to walk, then, I, well, then I've failed. I've already failed. You know, but if motherhood is like negotiating, like everything else in life, negotiating the complexity of human emotion and the full gamut, and never, ne and, but without neglecting responsibility, commitment, care, love, without neglecting those things, but allowing them to be kind of um, worked through with all the other emotions that are often the more difficult ones, frustration, anger, loneliness, um, depression, um, then, then, that, then, then, then let's do it, you know? Then there is no good or bad, and there is no I've won or I've failed. There's just like, okay... <laughs> Where are we at, you know, at this day and this hour and where are we at in the next hour and where are we at in the next hour, which feels true to what it is to live. We're never done until we're all finally done. And we, you know, and at some point we all will be. Motherhood as being human, basically. <laughs> yeah. And how funny that, the, you know, there's so much judgment that that hasn't, there's so many spaces where that's not allowed, you know, that's just not allowed.
We haven't learned how to, it's, a, it's as if it's easier to say, no, no, it's none of those things. It's only these things. And then do that because we're so scared to learn how to navigate the more complex path, which is not a set of rules or a do's and don'ts or ticks. It's much harder, much, much harder, but surely, you know, surely that's the one we ought to be walking even to make, to, to, to help us make good humans. Um, I mean, I do, I do subscribe to the, <clears throat> you know, my children need to see that I also have difficult emotions and watch me try and work through those versus simply see a cherry mother 24 hours of the day. I mean, that, that probably will produce quite strange people because they're like, don't understand that there's also sadness and there's fatigue and I mean everything with a pinch of salt of course because these are young people that are still forming and don't understand you know the super super complex things but also I think we don't ascribe enough intelligence to children I learned so much just watching and they're so different my two kids and I just learned different things from each one just observing and seeing oh wow look at that look at how sensitive that is look at how aware he is look at how he knows that already where did you learn that? You know, I'm always surprised. I'm like, where did you learn that? Yeah, I mean, it's children are definitely a lesson in being present and um, connecting yeah. to exactly how you're feeling at the particular time. Even my little one obviously can't talk yet, but you can see him going through a range of emotions and how present he is for those, you know, and how present he mm -hmm. is in everything that he does. It's really quite something um you know to live without i mean he's easily distracted as well but to live without being in two places at once you know he's always where mm -hmm. he is um yeah. and i think in these early days motherhood can feel extremely pressing or immediate almost like a survival mode activity but in an unusual grief we also catch a glimpse at different types of motherhood motherhood over the long haul and motherhood from afar um, and something people keep saying to me is parenting is long in days and short in years. How did yes. you begin to conceptualize this long-term feeling of motherhood if you've written the book before you even became a mother? And what strategies do you employ as a mother not to get caught up in those day-to-day -day challenges? Yeah, I mean, with the second question, I mean, I, I and, and it's it's to your point about, about the immediacy of, children and then the and the, the and the the pull to immediacy that, that that they pull you into that um i mean it's so interesting now because my my one of my sons the other day was said mama sit you know and and he's right because i mean i'm everywhere and i'm trying to do everything and i'm doing the dinner and, I, and he's just he's like sit and it's it's so wise and he you know he probably wants me to sit because he just wants me to be near him but it's so wise what he's saying he's saying like woman you're all over the place, you know, come and just sit down with us for, for a second. Like a really good friend would tell you that, you know, come and just sit, come and be. And um, I think I'm so grateful for that. Um, I am, I am a, a bit of a, I'm a doer. I'm, I'm you know, I, I, I'm, I, I do a lot and I feel like my kids sort of remind me and sometimes physically tell me to, to be, to be in the moment um, and I, I agree with you. I've also heard that about the, the short years and the long, the long days, but, um, and felt it myself, particularly earlier on when they were much younger, my boys were much younger. Um, 
but I, I do, I was warned a lot and I, I, I'm sure you the same. It goes by really quickly. So, so, so I was told, you know, even like the hardest moments and the sleepless nights and sometimes the screaming and the soak it up, you know, like really soak that up because you, you'll be nostalgic for that in 10 years time. And I somehow, that somehow got through to me. So I really, even like in a really, and with two kids, you know, one wants that and they want the absolute opposite things in the exact moment. I just think, okay, there will be a day when you guys are 15 and I'm like, did you know <laughs> that you, this is what you were doing to your mother when you were two? Um, so, so I, I don't know, I don't know if it's a strategy, but I mean, I think I just somehow heard it enough times in the early days that I really listened to that advice to take it all in. And maybe because I am a bit older, I understand that time is passing. And then we're also in a time where loss is acute. You know, we're losing people. My dad is elderly. I have a sense of the, of how, of the, of the brevity, actually, even of a long life. Um, and so I keep thinking, I haven't quite got the sentence in my head, but I keep thinking how I'm trying to phrase this thing of like how having children is like living with an, with an hourglass. You, you know, you, you just see the sand slipping through and in a way that I haven't had that visual, um, that visual key to the passing of time as much as, as now when I have children, you see it, you really see it. Um, so, so yeah, I think your second question, I mean, to your first question, I, like, I don't know. There was no, there was nothing, um, deliberate let's say or anything conscious I mean it's it's funny because because now being a mom and if I look back at the book I'm like wow okay that's interesting and interesting that I you know I went back to read a couple of scenes to just check and I was like okay that's interesting that um so there was nothing conscious I think just with writing the book I I I obviously researched I drew a lot on my own relationship with my mom maybe not in the details but just in the the emotional details um and the that tethering that you talk about and um, that's the, the complexity of relationship. Um, I read, I also read this amazing book by Aminata Fona called The Myth, um, The Mother of All Myths, I think it's called, which is a really incredible resource to, for me, where, where she talks about different, different kinds of, in different cultures, what motherhood and in different epochs, what mother, mothering and motherhood has meant. It was really refreshing to have a kind of almost um, almost anthropological look at um, what mother has meant over the ages and in different spaces. So that because we're so precious about mothering and parenting, you know, and it's so and particularly in modern times, and it's like it's attachment and it must be this and you have to wear this and it has to. And I think that preciousness also can also be um, counterproductive, let me put it that way. I mean, um, because then everything is so acute and always acute and we don't have any space. Again, this thing of space, just having a bit of space about how we relate to mothering and parenting. Um, just a bit of air, you know, to breathe because it's, it is so hard and it, it is so um, 
there's so much riding on it, but just to have a bit of air around it um, for the mother herself, you know, for the parent. Um, so yeah, no specific strategies, I think, in terms of writing, but more just trying to try to be the best writer I could be and attend to the subject, you know, with care and with a sense of delicacy. And maybe in that capturing what you say, the, the role of distance, the role of time um, in the journey and experience of motherhood. Mm. Well, I think you've done it beautifully. I, I thought it was extremely um, tender and um, accurate in a lot of places. One of the things um, that Montesola struggles with is postnatal depression, which is likely exacerbated or brought on by the serious lack of sleep that she's having to deal with because of the colic, among other things. Um, in the book, it says, snatches of her days right after Yinka's birth creep in, how she had felt on the outskirts of humanity, how everyone else in the world knew things and she knew nothing. Her mothers had occurred as versions of her mother and Auntie Madupe in full possession of themselves and their daughters. She cowered away. She hid. It had taken Mojisola decades to learn the fault lines in her own thinking. She was not at all on the outskirts of humanity. In her loneliness, lack of confidence, fears and terrors, she was right in the center along with everyone else. And I think you captured that feeling of isolation and strangeness, but also how connected you are to everybody else's isolation and strangeness so well. Mm -hmm. Why was postnatal depression and depression in general, mental health issues in general, something you wanted to touch on in the book? And how do you think that new mothers can escape that feeling of isolation? Yeah, I mean, I think, thank you, Jen. I mean, I think that, um, <clears throat> I think that I'm almost in, in anything I write, I'm always interested in the emotions that we don't have a lot of room for in society or that carry a lot of judgment or that we struggle the most with. Um, and so, I mean, not just with Mojisala, but even a step before that, um, when I was writing the book, Yinka was always dead in the book. I mean, that was a key part of the story. Um, but for a long time writing the book, I wrestled with myself about how much to reveal about how come she's dead? Why is she dead? How is she dead? There were versions of the book where I just thought I'm not, you know, I can't go into the detail around uh, Yinka's suicide. I don't, um, I, sometimes I didn't feel I had permission to, other times I didn't feel like I could produce that sort of book and what would it mean and it would be too depressing and you know there were all sorts of until eventually and and I remember my agent and I having a conversation where where I just where it was just well if that's the story if this is the story that's coming then let's let's just write that story and trust um so anyway the story is already about uh, fragile feelings and um um desperation and um, immense, immense sadness and depression. Um, and in fact, it's something that resonates through all three family members in different ways. Um, so it, it was something that I, would be there. Um, it was important because I think with this, there's something, it's so crippling. I think you said it just now. It's like we have we have what feels like this deeply singular, unique experience. And it's not happiness. 
somehow we can we sort of we can manage if it's happiness. But when it is something so crippling as this, um, it isolates us. And yet, of course, it's mirrored in so many other people's experiences. And so I'm always interested in how to throw light on the stuff that we, we often only keep in the darkness. Because in the hope that um, by throwing light on that, um, we remember, we see, we recognize um, and gain extra capacity or facility to be with these seemingly at least harder emotions. Um, so that's something I'm always interested in just in my writing in general. Um, and I mean, I think, I think, I think maybe, I don't know if it's a strategy, but I think we have to remember, it seems so kind of, it belongs in the lyrics of, of a cheesy song, but we, we do have to remember that we're connected. I think, that, I think motherhood, particularly early motherhood, and also the ways in which we live and how, how life is fashioned, can be so incredibly um, lonely. Um, even even when you're surrounded by others, I mean, there is something very particular. I often think like, no one will know what I have to do for my children. You know, I keep thinking that. And sometimes my partner's here, sometimes he's not here, but I keep thinking, nobody will ever know. Right? It's something that, it's just something I do in those quiet moments or in, like the, some of the craziness I've had to do, some of the ingenuity I've had to rely on to care for and nurture two, two kids. Um, and then I can enjoy that, you know, by myself, but there's also something, it's also quite, there's something sad or lonely about that. And, I, and there's no, I don't think there's a cure for that one, but I do think that if we can find ways to connect, um, if we can find, you know, I, I, the kind of things that I did, and I mean, uh, and this isn't necessarily for postnatal depression, but just for loneliness, singularity, exhaustion, um, depression. I am, I, I would, I found, I found groups online. You know, I've, I, I've, I don't think I've, I ever reached out online to groups till I was a mom. You know. Um, I found uh, podcasts and articles that resonated with me and, and, and parenting that I still read and relate to today. I remember when my kids were sort of getting older and the, they were interacting and I had to sometimes protect them from each other. I thought, oh my goodness, how am I going to manage this? This is really delicate. And I reached out and I found a group uh, most of them are in, in LA or some are in the UK and we still meet once a week, you know, today, you know, almost a year and a half later from when I sought them out. <clears throat> I don't know these people. We're definitely not friends, but we're a community and we meet and we, our kids are the same age and we swap notes and we get some guidance. We go back into the next week. And for somebody else that might be rather avant-garde or like, oh, you know, and for me, it's been a lifeline. So I think you just find what you need, um, and and you know don't don't be apologetic about what you find you need to help you get through that day or that week. Um, there are resources out there, and we're lucky to live in a time where 
you know, for the most part, we can get to the internet and we can we can search and we can find. Because I think we live particularly on COVID days and my kids were born, you know, slap bam in the middle of that. The physical community is not always there. Not out of, um, uh, not out of a, a, a lack of caring or, or ability, but just sometimes uh, necessity like COVID and safety <clears throat> and health and health issues. So, so yeah, I mean, I feel I'm rambling a bit, but I think the first thing is to, the Mojisola, and she realizes it later, she, you know, she thought, she, she really thought it was, it was, it was, a, I think there's some, a place I say it's, it's a disease of one. And, and um, it's, you know, it's a country of one. It's just, it's just her. And I know for me in my most difficult times, that's always the worst, the worst kind of thinking. It's like, it's just me. And I, I, whenever I manage to find a little window to open up a bit and reach out, I realize, oh, oh well, okay. <laughs> There's at least one other or like another thousands. Um, and that's always a, a comfort. I, I've experienced exactly that same thing of feeling like, you know, you're all alone in this and then you talk to one person and they know 10 people who have gone through the same thing and those 10 people know 10 people. Um, and one of the um, things that I've drawn on a lot for, uh, in my journey is the antenatal group. We went to antenatal classes before my son was born and those moms, it was during COVID, we didn't really interact as normal people. We sort of went to the class and went home. But since then, we're on this WhatsApp group where everybody's sharing you know, basic, how do you make the food? <laughs> basic practical questions. Um, and it's just so helpful. And one of the, the things I saw on Instagram the other day was a post that said, I want mom friends, but like the kind I don't have to leave my house and put on real clothes for, but we text all day and they invite me places and don't leave me out, even though I probably won't go. But we send each other memes and gifts and have a deep, meaningful connection. <laughs> and I think that's so like, whatever you can find, wherever you can find your community as a parent, it's so important to have that community. And I mean, that again, to quote like cheesy things is that saying that it takes a village. And often in the group, one a person will say, thanks village, because we all know that, you know, we don't have those resources in, in way of community that, that people did a long time ago. We have to make it in whatever form we can. And be generous with ourselves. I mean, I think one of the things I always, always struggled with and still do sometimes is I think, oh my goodness, you know, I'm not, I'm just not social. You know, I'm, I'm so exhausted. I'm so tired between work and, and like, I'm not, I, I sometimes think I, like I'm not as good a friend and like, I'm not available to, you know, have coffee or whatever. I just, I don't have the energy. I don't. Um, and I think what I've been grateful for is the, friendships as you say and the spaces where it it can be a really long voice note because I have this moment now I can I can do it you know and then I have that moment now when I can listen to your response and there's a sense of flexibility with how friendships can grow and morph and there will be a time when you know it changes again because the needs are different but in this time in this early time being able to adapt and being around people who are willing to adapt with you um, and our understanding are generous um, I, I so appreciate I think it's about you know just being allowing it as a sort of self-kindness allowing yourself um, I think something Nana said was you know allowing yourself a bit more grace to yes. just do what you can when you can in the form that you can make it work 
Um, one of the things that I've read a lot of, or that I experienced a lot in the in the very early days, as I was sort of trying to adjust to having this as an identity, being a mom, and and what that would mean for the rest of my life, was experience of mom guilt and feeling guilty about doing things for myself or doing things that I ordinarily would have done, you know, for for no good reason. Do you ever experience mm. that feeling of mom guilt, and what do you feel guilty about, and how do you get through it? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things I don't feel guilty about. I think I, I do. I think the the guilt I feel, um, the job I have, does involve some travel, and you know, I delayed it for as long as possible, and my job was very understanding. But um, I, I, you know, I've had to now the kids are two, so I think I've been away twice, and I, I told my job, okay, four nights, I can go away for four nights. I can't go away for longer. The first time I went away, I, I, I felt. I don't know if it's guilty. I mean, I wouldn't say guilty. I think it's bereft. I just felt like so kind of torn, you know, and I, I remember thinking in my head, you know, here I am, I was in Kenya. It's like, I'm in Nairobi. I have two hearts and they're both back in, in Johannesburg. You know, it felt that way. Um, but also that passed, you know, and I got quite a bit of writing done on the plane. And, I, you know, I, I was like, okay, I slept and I enjoyed that, you know, that I made sure I enjoyed. I was like, don't, don't feel guilty for that stuff. Um, and so I think that's maybe what I was trying to say when I say the things I don't feel guilty about. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping to um, occupy a, a, like a distinct experience of motherhood from maybe a previous generation where, where mothering had to be you had to give everything, right? And unless you gave everything, or, or, or um, then you were then you were then you were lacking. So I'm like, okay, can we redefine what everything means? And can everything not mean that there's there's nothing left for me? Um, so like I'm I'm actually excited to to keep on the journey and keep occupying a kind of a distinct experience of motherhood where like I can do these things for myself. I can go away. I can, um, I can take a break. Um, I can enjoy, uh, you know, I put my children to bed and I have whatever my partner jokes. Cause it's like 15 minutes before I, you know, fall into a stupor, but whatever the amount of time I have, I can just enjoy that and relish it, you know, and be happy that, yeah, the kids are sleeping and I can now read my book or, you know, eat my biscuit in peace. Um, I really want to relish those things um, and relish the time away from my children. Um, I'm, you know, I'm grateful that I can afford to have somebody help me with my, with my kids and, um, have that support and enjoy the time it gives me to maybe catch up on sleep um, or do something. So, I mean, I think it's an interesting conversation, the one, the thing of guilt. And I, like what I would love is that we keep pushing that needle, you know, so that, so that when we are with ourselves or doing something for ourselves, it doesn't occur as um, we're neglecting something else. I mean, I've really imbibed the idea that I, I have to be well for my kids to be well you know if I'm if I am if I'm completely you know beleaguered and totally exhausted 
And I've seen that. I've seen, like, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not really good at mothering. But when I, you know, when I've had that good sleep and I wake up, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just thrilled to be with them and care for them and attend to every little need. So I think I really understand that I need to be cared for. I need to be well, you know, I need to be nurtured myself. Um, and so and so part of my job as a mother is to tend to myself. Um, I think what what can happen is we get used to neglect and we rationalize it um, and we make it okay. You know, and then we mother from that place and the chinks might not come immediately, um, but I think they will show up eventually and probably in us, not the kids. You know, we won't compromise them we compromise ourselves until until a, a much later stage where sometimes it's too late to repair so that's always something i set myself I, that's actually something i consciously always felt strongly about that i would you know uh, i will i will have to factor into the whole mothering um uh, landscape you know um and I have I have the odd friend. I think I have two or three friends that have been amazing examples of that. That I, I I look at and I observe and I see what they do. Like a friend of mine, a friend of mine on Mother's Day, she's like, oh, Mother's Day, someone else takes the kids, right? Because there's this thing like on Mother's Day that you're. She's like, I'm always with my kids and caring for them, you know. So she has Mother's Day where she goes and she does her massage. And she does so. She's like, that's what Mother's Day looks like for me. If it's really Mother's Day, it's not Children's Day. It's Mother's Day. So, um, and she was also the one, you know, when I, when my kids were super small, I found the money and I had a, a night nurse, and she was the one who did that. She when she she had kids before I did, and I'd never heard of this night nurse thing. I said, what is that? And she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this is what they do, and um, especially because I had two children and. For, for for quite chunks of the time I was you know single with them, it, it was it was just sensible to just find find the resources and and give that gift to myself, um, and feel absolutely no guilt about it. Um, understand that that's what was needed for me to perform at my best. Yeah, I think it's young, and I probably will get the quote wrong, but it's something like there's nothing more harmful for children than the unlived life of their parents. So it's mm. so true that we have to live our full lives so that they can see that that's, like you were saying earlier, so they can observe that you have the full range of emotions, that you have passions and interests and go places. And um, But I think that, that describing it as bereft is, is accurate. You know, I, I think... I've struggled with postnatal depression myself and having now mm. having now been on the meds and feeling a little bit more distance from that anxious, depressed feeling, I can sort of examine mm. what those feelings are a little bit better. And mm. I, it, it definitely is. I thought it was guilt and anxiety and worry that I wasn't doing it right. But I think it is just, you know, like this deep, enduring love that I've never felt before and feeling bereft when he is at creche and thinking, you know, what is he doing now? Is he all right? Is he being loved and cared for in the way that I want him to be? And having to accept that, you know, I've made the choice for him to go to creche because I trust those people will care for him in a way that I can't if I'm not doing my work, if, you know, if I don't have an income, if I'm not yeah. a full human being, um, has been very yeah. helpful, I think, uh, to get that distance and perspective and space like you describe it. 
Yeah, and to remind ourselves. I mean, I think limits is something that that and boundaries is something I'm I'm really interested in, and even just even just from a from 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 the planets, you know, like like the, the boundaries of this planet and the ways in which we try and override those limits, or we've been overriding them, and the message is clear now. But even now, in, in, as mothers, like I think, the, it's motherhood is this very poetic thing because I think there are ways in which that love is just limitless, and of course, it's it's boundless, and it's but there are also ways in which there are moments where I'm so relieved and restored when I just think. I am limited, you know, possibly, yes, every single action I make with these kids is just determining the next, whatever, 60 years of their lives. But I'm also just human and limited and flawed. And I can actually give, put put myself off the hook, you know, because everything, every gesture, every parting, the trip I make that's seven nights long and, you know, it's like, well, you know what? We'll have to just work all that out. And I think I do... I do remind myself of that because I think we're in a culture where there is a preciousness and every single action and, you know, you can't and child mustn't cry and you must and the feeding and you do this and the bottle and the, and sometimes I'm just like, you know what? My parents didn't have all that stuff, right? And there's a whole bunch of stuff for sure that I, I know they did that probably, you know, today we would frown at. And here I am, you know, I'm definitely not perfect, but I'm okay. And like, I think just that's the grace I think Nana's also talking about. It's like we, we have to give room because we're in a culture that is so tight um, and so, you know, prescriptive. Um, and the minutiae is, 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 is seen in great detail um, that we also just like zoom out, zoom out, just like, okay, there's a, there's a lot here. Um, some of it will be on me, yes, but there's a whole bunch that they came with, quite frankly, and that they'll get along the way as well. Yeah, I mean, we have to keep the therapists of the future in business as well. It's our responsibility <laughs> in terms of like the economy <laughs> as well. New problems, Jen. I was saying yeah. new problems. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff we don't even know. Problems. Yeah. Um, a last question before I get to the final three that I, that I ask everybody. But, you know, we mentioned earlier, we both mothers to boys and this idea of gender and how constricting and... Um, how sort of normative it is, uh, is is quite terrifying. I felt the same thing. I didn't, we didn't know what we were having until the day it arrived. And so we, you know, I was also thinking, okay, it's going to be a girl and I've got this and I can, you know, I know I'm, how I'm going to make a strong woman, but I hadn't thought enough about how it was going to make a strong and kind and feminist and gentle and the, you know, the huge range of emotions boy. Um, and something that I've been thinking a lot about myself. How do you think, we can raise feminist men who will take up the mantle of making the world more gender equal for everybody. Yeah, sure. It's uh, and I, of course it's something I think about a lot. And early days, it was, um, it was noticing how people, you know, don't cry. You know, the, the don't cry. And I thought that's it, like I'm really learning how insidious this is, and how, you know. Um, when we when we say it's in society and when we say the violence is in society and it's cultural when we say the the culture the rape culture the violence culture I, like i see how it's so insidious because so so one of the things i one of the things for sure and i don't i don't know who knows who i will raise and that's part of the space i give because i'm like what i got this huge insight the other night again with this group i 
I sit with once a week where, you know, I think, yeah, yeah, you know, all the things I'm doing is going to equal these great, great guys. But actually, the, 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 the approach I'm taking and my attention to my parenting is not about an outcome. What I'm doing is to ensure that my relationship with each of my children is solid and remains solid and that it's something we can grow and expand on and that hopefully if they live to be adults and I'm still around, we can be nurturing that same relationship and that just grows and grows and grows the way any friendship, any love, whatever that we would do. And it was such a great insight to me because I think I'm like, I'm like product driven. And I realized, no, this isn't about like, I'm not trying to churn out whatever wonderful teachers or engineers or doctors. I don't know what these kids are going to do. But, but if I can nurture our relationship through how I parent them, I nurture a relationship with them and I'm always available. They know I'm here, non-judgmental. They can bring things to me as they grow and as we, and we can chart this course, then we'll deal with the other stuff. Right, we'll deal with the drugs and we'll deal with the sexism, whatever they bring. We'll deal with the this and the that and the other. I can't predict. You know, I don't know who they'll meet when they're this age that manages to convince them, you know, women are this, that, or the other. Like I don't know. I'm not that powerful, but I can I have control over how they relate to me and see me, what they know about me, that they understand my love for them and what I'm here for. So I, I think, so that's my attention now. But of course, as a feminist, I'm like, yeah, you know, I want feminists, I want feminists to come out of this. Um, so for me, smaller things, almost slightly more minutial things. I mean, I, I think emotions are important. I notice how we don't allow boys to cry. You know, and I think some people have sort of looked at me funny sometimes, like when they're in a cry, I'm not, my intention is not to stop them from crying. I mean, sure, if it's something... If it's, you know, if it's, if it, 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 my attention is more on letting them cry, holding them if that's appropriate, if they want to be held and, you know, talking through it a little bit with them. Um, but they, they need to understand that the full gamut of, of emotions should be available to them, men or not men. And I think that's one of the smallest, earliest, most insidious things that happens is m- men get uh, and women, of course, it happens, you know, the same, but we decide what are the emotions you're allowed to have? What are the things you're allowed to do? Uh, what are you allowed to wear? I know that's so small, but like I get so, I started sewing because like I go to the shops to buy simple things for the kids that doesn't cost an arm and a leg and they're all awful and they're full of the, you know, branding and the things that boys apparently need on their clothing. And I'm just like, this is, I just want a plain you know, fairly attractive piece of item of clothing. Um, so, so in, in those simple, small ways, um, I think. But I think the biggest of which, and I hope the most impactful of which, is I want to. I want them to have emotions. They're they are often angry, and it's like, okay, you can't hit me, but you can be angry. And I try and I try and sometimes name the emotion, even at this age. I mean, I might not label it, but I'd say, you know. Are you a bit frustrated or you're a bit angry? It seems like you're a little angry. Are you? Is that the case? And as they grow older, I, I want, you know, because that's the violence, right? But you don't have to do violence. You can, you can have the anger. It doesn't have to equate to, to something else. So 
You know, I don't, yeah, I don't know, Jen, it's also a shorter answer, but I mean, those are the, the thoughts and the things and the small actions I'm taking with them at this age. As they grow older, I'm here for all the conversations. I'm here to talk through what they will meet. I think that we, we are a blended and definitely not conventional family, so there are a lot of things that will come at them. Um, um, even just the construction of our family, right? Um, there's no daddy. Um, there's my partner, but we've sort of currently chosen not, not to label him as daddy, and they call him something else, and we'll have that conversation at some point, and my journey to mothering them. Um, so there's a lot that's coming, and mostly I'm, I'm up for it. I'm, I'm, op- I'm up for it, and I'm open, I'm open to it. I think that all sounded wonderful and, um, and just so true about letting people have the feelings that they have because those repressed feelings inevitably end up in conflict in some way. And so if you can allow both boys and girls to feel anger or sadness or you know, hurt or justifiably hurt when someone wrongs them, then you, you have a better world where people are able to label and express their feelings and to tell other people that they've hurt them as well, which is so yeah. important. And to express it and to to um to feel it the, and mm. the tears to feel that sadness and to because I mean within the best of intentions we try and distract but actually just sit with them for a couple of minutes I mean the crying mm. will end eventually um, but two things that came to mind just quickly I know we're wrapping up one is um I also heard somebody saying it's so important to for children to observe people having conflict and resolving the conflict. Because sometimes we also think, oh, let's hide conflict from our children, like conflict between the partners or whatever, and protect them somehow. But actually what you're doing is it's so much scarier because children are so sentient. Obviously they know something's wrong, but none of it is out. (laughs) You know, so, and of course these people have different views on this. And obviously within reason, I'm not saying violence, but I'm saying conflict, like, when you when you have a disagreement, um, to observe that disagreements happen and resolutions happen, how does that resolution happen? Um, I see it a lot with my kids. I mean, they're an inbuilt lesson because there are two of them, and they, of course, they fight and they want the same thing and they pull and they and I mean, I don't. I early days advice I also got was I don't play judge and jury. You know, I don't say, oh, well, he had it first, so he gets it. Or he, I don't bring that logic to them. I try and make sure they don't hurt each other. And I allow them to work it out amongst themselves. And they do. They, you know, they negotiate and somebody gets the other thing. as well, you take this one and I'll get that back. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But I'm enjoying the classroom of that where you actually, so we have conflict. We really have conflict and we have examples of resolution. We have many examples of no resolution as well. And that's life. Something I think is, feels like good feedback is that my kids from very early on when they could talk, um, started asking for hugs. Um, one, one is, I would say slightly more affectionate than the other. So he started with that earlier, but they both do it now and ask me for a hug or ask someone for a hug. And um, I don't know, I just, I really love that. I just love that they do it and I hope they continue doing it. I guess it'll stop at some point. But I feel like that's quite interesting feedback to get that they they can ask for comfort in a very direct manner 
and receive it or not receive it. Sometimes I can't hug them because I'm my hands are dirty or I'm busy or whatever, you know. But that is that's it there. That's it there. That's the negotiation and using conversation, uh, using words to to link to our needs. Yeah, I think so much of parenting is a balance between intervention and observation and trying to work out which is the most appropriate strategy in the moment is, I suppose, how we will learn as parents to be better and more responsive to what our kids need. And one of my friends has a nephew who's learned to say when he's having a hard time, he'll say, I'm struggling. And it's just, oh. I think that's so lovely <laughs> because that's that's so, that is exactly how it feels when you don't actually know how you feel. Just to be able to yes. say I'm struggling is such a oh. useful word to have. Um, I think more of us should be able to say that <laughs> that also yeah, as well. That's wonderful. Mm. So the final three questions that I ask all of the guests that come on. Um, the first is, do you have a book that inspired your feminism or perhaps since we're talking about parenting has inspired your parenting journey? You mentioned um, the mother of all myths already. If there's anything else that you'd like to mention. Oh gosh, the books inspired my feminism. I mean, it's... Um, yeah, fit, fit, yeah, inspired, I guess, yeah, to feed. Um, I mean, almost all of um, Toni Morris's books that I read when I was, whatever, in my teens, um, Alice Walker, is another one. There's a book I read called Becca Lam by Zia Edgill. Um, I mean, these are, these are not, these, these are, you know, fictional novels, this is literature, but yeah, that's where a lot of my uh, I would say a lot of the politics I have have, have come from. Um, yeah. Mm, fiction is perfect inspiration for life. <laughs> People often say, oh, these are fiction. And I think that's where most of us get our understanding of the world from. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. And, and then do you have a quote or any words of wisdom that you live by? I I, I think one, one that I love is the... the um, I mean, it's it's a it's a very um, it feels like a very um, absolute statement. I might not agree with the with the absolutism of it, but so so the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, I am. I definitely the unexamined part, like just the, the the I do I do live by that. I don't necessarily I don't I don't I don't give it as advice to anybody else, but for me. Um, the opportunity to examine myself, to examine my life, and then as a writer, yeah, to examine the lives of others and also the lives of my characters um, just makes me more whole, I believe, um, and makes life um, that much more poignant and meaningful. Mm, definitely. And then my final question to you today is, do you have any advice for other feminists on their journeys, either as feminists or parents or both? Oh, wow. Yeah. Advice. I mean, I'm so bad with advice because I feel like <laughs> I always feel like um, maybe that's not true. I mean, I was going to say, I feel like the best advice is is always very personal and intimate because it's, it's um, like it. Um, so it's, it's attending to detail and, and to be able to give that kind of advice. You need to know who you're speaking to. Um, but also, I think there's there's some pieces of advice that 
are so broad and general that they speak to all of us. Um, so let me think. Um, I mean, I think uh, the, the thing for me, and I don't know if this, I don't know if we can pull advice out of this, but what always appealed to me about when I started to hear the word feminism, I mean, I was probably a feminist already, but when I started to really engage with with that, is I just I felt like what was beautiful about this, if I can use that word, is maybe what I just said. It is it's about looking, it's about looking at self, it's about looking relooking at history. It's about looking at relationships. It's about um, looking at its assumptions. Um, I love that activity. I think I just think that's the activity that will save us as humanity and help us, you know, save the planet. Like just the capacity to see oneself. We don't see ourselves. It's it's hard, I guess. Um, it's damn hard, but. The, at least, even just the intent, at least, to try and see oneself is already a good start. It, um, it carries with it humility, you know, care, caution. It has us pause, has us slow down. All of these are things that I think we could, we could do with um, as, as human beings. Um, our families could do with it. The planet could do with it. Our countries could do with it. Our leaders could do with it. Um, mm, pause and slow down. Good. Yeah, we're, we're not very good at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems. It would seem. No, and I think that's such good advice for parents as well, like you were saying earlier on, to just soak it up, to be a bit more present, to slow down and just sit. Um, yeah. And it's helpful advice for everybody. Yeah, wonder. I've yeah. loved listening to you today. It has been so nourishing for me and I feel like all warm and fuzzy afterwards. Thank you so much for making the time to come on the podcast. I can't wait for everybody to hear this as well. Thank you, Jane. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to, yeah, just to talk in this way and, and mm. to to converse on these topics, these shared, our shared, um, our shared spaces, in this case, feminism and parenting. Mm. And yeah, Lovely. thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.